Welcome to the Bullshit Blog, your number one podcast for disseminating truth from bullshit, covering public health, politics, the economy, the occult, spirituality, and everything in between. If you're fed up with the mainstream media, then keep listening. Have you ever sat and wondered about poverty? Like, really actually thought about poverty. What does it actually mean? What is the legal definition of the term poverty? If you're anything like me, this thought would often cross your mind. And when it does, you become perplexed, even overstimulated, thinking about the topic, about the nuances, complexity, about poverty, and the politics that's involved. I always just thought you helped people that were less fortunate than you. I did not realize that there was such a nuance about poverty, the type of poverty, the length of poverty, you even have different categories of poverty. Racial poverty, or sexual orientation poverty, disability poverty, geographic poverty. There were so many different areas in this topic. I realized I had to get a couple of experts on the show to discuss it and analyze how poverty became something that was so simple into this complex, nuanced topic. So join me on the Bullshit Blog as we discuss poverty. Does it exist in Australia? And really, what is it all about? After travelling around China and a lot of Asia, I saw a lot of things that many may consider backwards or even to be a lower standard of life. Then I started thinking, is the term poverty a Western concept? Many of these people seem to live content, productive and happy lives and in many cases happier than some rich people I know. Then I thought, perhaps the meaning of poverty needed to be changed. Poverty as we know it simply means to mean monetary poor or to have a lack of money. But can the meaning of poverty be expanded to mean exclusion, lack of accessibility to resources and various other different things? Again, I went on our dear old trusty friend Facebook to do some research and then I found Dr. Shannon said researcher, lecturer from the University of Wollongong. When I turned on the TV and found SBS doing the exact same thing I was doing, I thought, my TV spying on me? However, the clip I was watching had a lovely professor on by the name of Kylie Valentine, who's a professor at the University of New South Wales. And I thought, she's somebody who knows about this stuff. I should get her on the show. So join us as we talk about poverty. What is it? Does it exist in Australia? And do Westerners have a misconception on what poverty actually is? So, Professor, for the listeners out there, can you give us a bit of information about what you do and a bit of background about yourself? Um, So I work at the University of New South Wales at a research centre called the Social Policy Research Centre. We've been around for about 40 years and we do research on income poverty and other types of social and um, economic disadvantage. And we also do work on the policies and programs that are set up to try to address those things. So a range of areas and a range of topics, everything from uh, quantitative calculations of money and comparing um, income status and living standards between countries through to the experience of what it's like to be... um, going to school without much money when you're a kid in um, Western Sydney 
and um, all you care about is your school excursion and what it's going to mean for your friends. My name's Shannon. Um, I uh, have been studying at university for quite a while. Um, my background is actually in music, um, so music and cultural studies. Um, so I um, completed my PhD um, in 2017. I was looking at um, a Christian married community in Greater Western Sydney, uh, how they combine their faith and their culture. Um, one of the um, one of my supervisors um, was a social worker, um, and he was really really encouraging me to pursue social work. Um, I was looking for work after PhD, as most kind of doctorate students are, and he wanted a research assistant um, to focus on some of the Pacific projects he was working on. So he's a Fijian um, Australian man, um, and he was yeah basically just looking for a research assistant. Um, so my work with him went on for about what two years after that, and we covered a range of different issues. Um, the main one, kind of looking at why Pacific students might not at, um, attend university. What are some of the factors in that? Um, and then what are some of the things that we can do to promote attendance? Um, and he actually started a program that saw a huge increase in Pacific students attend university, um, and some of those then um, matriculated onto you know completion and then got in their desired careers. Um, to the point where he was able to capture data on uh, Maori and Pacific students um, who actually attended the university in the enrollment stats, which is pretty significant considering that it's typically only Indigenous students that get Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders they get captured in those. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. I guess that in a professional sense, that was probably my first um, kind of uh, delving into issues of poverty and issues of low socioeconomic um, status and how that might influence um, people's decision. Obviously, that's not saying all Pacific people or Maori people come from that background, um, but we found consistently that that was something that obviously did inhibit their ability to attend higher education. Um, often, people, uh, you know, families that tend to be large families that come from those groups, um, and typically they're the first um, generation to migrate. Um, so, typically coming from the Pacific Island nations um, or sometimes from New Zealand, um, education often isn't high enough to get well-paying jobs. So it's often labor-based jobs, construction-based jobs. Um, so yeah, I guess that, that that kind of low SES, low socioeconomic status was an issue there. Uh, subsequent research projects, one in particular that's relevant to this, um, we were looking at how universities um, identify low socioeconomic students, domestic Australian students. So that was very revealing um, in terms of um, the universities typically um, would use kind of areas. So if you come from a particular postcode, you're considered rich or poor. There's more to it than that. Um, but in a general sense, um, that's what the indexes they used were. Um, so we were trying to come up with how do we individualize that measure a bit better, um, given that it, you know, you could come from, you know, Vaucluse or somewhere like that, but you could come from a really actually low socioeconomic background. So that that's not an accurate measure at all. So we were looking at that and we, that, in, that covered three universities, so Western Sydney University, the University of Sydney, and then a later addition to that was James Cook University in Townsville. So it was a nice kind of, um, you know, suburban and then a kind of urban-based and then a remote, quite a remote-based um, university there. So yeah, that, that those are kind of, I guess, the main areas of um, poverty that I've looked at in an Australian context. But yeah, very... Uh, I guess in Australia it can be quite subtle. We don't really, we don't think, oh, poverty's not here. Well, we see homeless people, for example, or we think about Indigenous people, and they're the obvious, the, the obvious kind of examples of some people that may be in those situations. Again, obviously not all Indigenous people are, but I think when Australians think of poverty, 
they might think of some of those. There's a, there's a lot more people in, falling through the cracks, I guess. So what is poverty? I looked it up on Mr. Google, um, and they just said to be poor, which is really not helpful. Um, so I'm going to put my definition. <laughs> I basically think poverty is, is lack in, in whatever area you might think of it, um, be it financial, be it educational, be it spiritual, emotional, it's lack so that your needs can't be met, whatever those kind of needs are. And needs, obviously not wants, needs. So for the person to be able to, you know, not be malnourished, not not be in a situation where they're being depleted as a human due to a lack of whatever is around them or whatever they need. Poverty is really contested and multi-sort of valence concepts. So the way that it gets calculated often is that there's a income um, amount set, which is some proportion of the average income, and anybody who falls below that is regarded as being um, living in poverty. But that's a really technical kind of description, and it's been over the years, and there are different ways of measuring it and defining it. But essentially, the way that poverty can be described in sort of its most general terms is that you are, because of reasons not of your own choosing, excluded from the decisions and choices and activities that most people regarded as essential and a right to be able to do. What are some of the misconceptions or stereotypes people may have about poverty? Oh, there's lots. Uh, one is that, that it doesn't exist in Australia. Another is that if people are poor, it's their own fault. Another is that uh, if people are poor, it's because... They get a lot of money and handouts from the government and somehow waste it. Um, there's also misconceptions about the, um, the reasons that people live in poverty and the choices that they make as a result of living in poverty that uh, somehow make it morally okay for them to be poor. So there's always been a great deal of judgment and moralising about how poor people dress, what they wear, what they eat, how they talk to their children, how they talk to each other, uh, the, the way that they live, the way that they conduct themselves. So there's there's an enormous stigma and an, an enormous amount of myth-making around poverty because people, I guess, like to not acknowledge that it's such a prevalent problem in Australia and that it's a political choice rather than something that's inevitable or something that is beyond the control of Australian. There's a particular image, I think, that comes to mind when someone thinks of poverty. It's, you know, it's someone who doesn't have physical things to, you know, satisfy their hunger or their thirst or housing. But then you think of someone who, you know, maybe has to, feels, feels the pressure to have to keep up with the Joneses and, you know, max out their credit cards all the time. To me, that, that would be a form of poverty, that you're constantly in debt which a lot of the West is, debt, debt, debt up to our eyeballs. And we're effectively giving power of our own money, power of our own will to someone else. To me, that that's definitely a form of poverty. Your your will and your ability to decide and choose is is deeply, deeply compromised because of all that debt. So I think that, yeah, we, we, we see it purely on a physical plane, I believe. There are many people that have a lot of money. And yet emotionally, we see, you know, suicide rates, we see mental health um, issues amongst people that can have a lot of money. So, you know, there are things there as well where people are lacking. Um, again, if I go back to that definition of lack, I think it's a far more reaching concept and not, not strictly related to poverty, but obviously it is associated with it. Um, in many of many Western countries, you know, the whole idea of slavery is not something we think about as existing anymore. You know, there, there's all sorts of hidden slavery that we 
have completely no idea about. A couple of years ago, I went to a meeting that was talking about things like fair trade and products you can purchase that, you know, promote equitable income for people that make whatever products they might be from your chocolates to clothes, whatever else. And one of the people there said that, you know, a, a religious institution 10 minutes from my house there's a, there's a form of slavery that's being practiced in that institution. I'm like, what? You know, 10 minutes away. But, you know, it, it hides through all these different layers of having people, you know, migrate to this country and da 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 But it's all hidden. Um, and again, we wouldn't think of all slavery or poverty in that sense, but it's, 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 it's definitely there. I think even, you know, when we, as Westerners, and this is, you know, it's, it permeates everywhere, but even our shopping choices, when we choose to buy something, we might be ignorant of it, we might acknowledge it. If the person is being, you know, abused or not paid anywhere near an equal amount for their labor, we are then investing in that system of poverty, that cycle of poverty, that cycle of abuse and exploitation. Again, these are not things that people tend to think about. I think it's mostly a lack of knowledge of what's going on, but it's very much real. Former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke once said, by 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. How true is that statement today in 2020? Yeah, no, he got a lot of stick for that, and quite rightly. Uh, however, it should be noted that, um, that my colleague Peter Whiteford at the Australian National University has done quite a lot of work on child poverty in Australia and in other countries. And you might remember that during the GFC, there was a kind of economic stimulus package here as there was in other countries. Yep. Uh, and that's been talked about recently because of the economic stimulus package that's happening uh, right now uh, because of the fires and the flu. Um, yep. And there was a, there, I mean, there's a lot of kind of um, bashing of that stimulus package. However, my colleague Peter Whiteford, as I said, did some research that found out that that those measures in Australia were actually pretty good in not um, spiralling child poverty to the extent that happened in other countries and that Australian policies um, have been to this point reasonably okay in stopping the further escalation of child poverty. That said, um, as I said, of the 3 million Australians living in poverty, um, a, a quarter, more than a quarter, of, about a quarter of a million of those are children so children wow um, yeah and that's across australia and many of those of course live in families that are also poor i'm sure there has been some gain i mean you know australia generally is quite prosperous um i think if you look at the closing the gap initiative it's there's a few of those kind of objectives that have been met to close the poverty gap for indigenous people but on the whole that much of that is you know needs to be fulfilled still um, I think, yeah, for Indigenous people, there is still a fair bit of poverty. I'm no expert. I haven't spent a lot of time in country or anything like that. Just purely looking at the statistics, um, there's still a lot of issues there, you know, including, you know, the out-of-home care situation with Indigenous people. I think that that can be a form of poverty, not, not being connected to your land, not being connected to your people. Um, that's definitely a form of poverty um, that I think we see particularly... Um, underscored with our Indigenous peoples today. So poverty does exist in Australia? I think that there, w there would be some kind of gain. Like there's been some kind of gains to that statement, um, you know, and all the intention in the world, unfortunately. I think at some level, people are comfortable. We like our comforts and we don't want to trade off, you know, our comforts to help people. I mean, you know, the Smith family, for instance, they were child sponsorship um, system where it is actually quite easy, um, and I, I used to do it, uh, it is quite easy to alleviate, you know, someone's poverty. And that we're talking about you know, people in Australia, um, 
again, it might be it's a lack of education. Maybe it is just love of comfort. I don't know. Um, I think this, this our, our constant uh, materialistic ways. It's, 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 you know, and we'll probably get to this a bit later, but people often, you know, slight the idea of child sponsorship either in Australia or overseas. It is actually something, and I say this from personal experience, it's something that profoundly changes not only individuals, not only young people, um, it changes communities in a profound way. Um, and as we go, kind of go on with the interview, I'll discuss um, a few of the kind of organizations that not only depend on, you know, Westerners giving money, but they set up systems where the person in the country, um, you know, an entrepreneurial kind of system where they themselves um, can produce enough so that they, they literally break their own cycle of poverty. It's just giving them a little bit of that, you know, might be a, a microfinance loan or something. You see it over and over again. It, it actually does break the cycle of poverty. Absolutely, there are um, around 3.2 million people uh, living below the poverty line, of which um, about 774,000 are children. So it's it's around 14% of the population are living below the poverty line, which is one measure that's a pretty robust and widely accepted measure of poverty. So yes, it definitely exists in Australia and it's definitely a widespread. Does the meaning of poverty need to be extended from just meaning monetary poor? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, one of the really important um, findings about research on poverty is that it is pervasive. It affects everything in your life it is not just a sort of calculation of how much money you have at any one time it's enormously draining it's stigmatizing it's really terrible for your health for your well-being it puts you at risk of all kinds of um, bad things happening and then those bad things put you at further risk of poverty so you find that there are really kind of vicious feedback loops of poverty leading to other types of disadvantage which then place people at risk of more disadvantage if you have resources and something bad happens to you your experience will be vastly different from that of somebody who has no resources so although bad luck and terrible things happen to everybody across all facets of life the access you have to monetary resources makes an enormous difference to the circumstances that you find yourself in. And that's the case for both everyday kind of expected um, mishaps and bad luck, as well as the, the really catastrophic things. So it's absolutely um, to, the idea that poverty is just a, you know, sort of circumstance or a number against a particular kind of balance sheet could only be thought of by somebody who never really doesn't really know any know much about it, had never had any contact with it, had never yep. had any contact with people who had experienced it. I think it really depends who you ask. Um, I guess in some way the the utility of keeping the word poverty meaning financially poor is convenient because it, it means we don't have to see certain things that are there in society. Um, so if we can just keep it to the financial meaning of that word, um, it's easy. It's easier. Not easy, but it's easier. Um, I think it definitely ought to be extended, um, but then it becomes a matter of if you extend it, is there going to be such a focus on those that are financially poor along with all the other things that that brings? Um, obviously, just because, you know, a lack of money brings a whole host of other issues, um, a lack of hope, a lack of aspiration, a lack of purpose, a lack of desire. Um, there's other things as well, uh, like desire to, you know, pursue something meaningful. Um, 
So yeah, that that that's a tricky one. I think you have to be careful because it can be weaponized politically, <laughs> um, which we you know people people can cry, oh, "I'm poor, I'm poor, I'm poor" because of X, Y, Z. So I think we do need to focus on those that have financial lack, as you know, the government has money, and you know, it's it's money that they put behind things. Um, they don't really have the means to necessarily give people meet their needs in other, you know, spiritual or emotional ways necessarily. So it's probably the most, yeah, I guess, uh, direct material thing that they can do to help. After listening to both Dr. Said and Professor Valentine, I suddenly realized how politically weaponized poverty had become. Poverty was no longer about helping your fellow human being as an act of charity, goodwill, or humility. Poverty itself had become a political tool. Was Dr. Said right? Is fixing poverty actually quite easy, and Australians have become too comfortable? Did Professor Valentine have a point in regarding policy? Was government policy designed to prevent further escalation of poverty, as opposed to combating poverty? As Australians, do we wear rose-coloured glasses when we reflect upon our own society? I think Australians like to think we live in the lucky country. Many reflect and see Australia as the land of milk and honey, as opposed to a nation that has serious social problems that are being neglected. Once you lift up that rug and have a look at Australia's social fabric, it becomes clear there are loads of social problems we as a society are ignoring. The Australian government are ignoring some of these issues in order to keep the mainstream narrative Australia is a lucky country alive and well. However, we really need to be asking a lot more questions about poverty in Australia more frequently than we do. After listening to both Dr. Said and Professor Valentine, I realised how little I knew about poverty myself wondered what difference could I make? And I guess this is somewhat more of a controversial question, but a lot has been, I guess, debated in terms of what should be done or who is responsible in terms of trying, well, not you can't eliminate poverty, but trying to help alleviate it at best. I should the work fall to government as opposed to charity organisations? Yes. Again, I think it's a tricky thing given that our government changes every three years. I think when you start to support someone, then you pull the funding out from them. Um, and this this is an issue that is not just related to poverty, but you know any kind of relational building, um, any kind of support you offer to anyone, when you then remove that after three years, should the government change? Uh, it's it's detrimental. It can actually be worse. Someone establishes a relationship then with certain people, then it gets pulled. Um, another project I'm on, we're, we're having those sorts of discussions at the moment. Um, that's got to do with mental health, but it's it's still a similar thing. Um, I think the government ought to have some influence there, but you can't just throw money at stuff then walk away. If they were to set things up in such a way, as I said, where you're addressing the economic base of someone, where you're getting them to the point of being self-determining, you're promoting their autonomy, that they break the cycle of poverty and then they can keep going, I think that would be great. I don't know that that's what, again, I haven't looked critically into this in an Australian context so much. Um, I think rather than, well, I think the tendency is to throw money at things, to throw money at causes, um, rather than that kind of microfinance, small loan, which then enables the person to make their own kind of money um, that will make, you know, to be financially um, independent, and then you're going to be able to help them break that cycle. Um, again, I think charity organisations are probably better at this. They're on the ground. Um so it should be both, but they, again, it's all about sustainability, not chucking money at people. Use the money more wisely um, so that people can, you know, get out of that cycle. Because a lot of a lot of people are saying that charity organisations are there to pick up the slack due to government organis- organisations not doing like their job essentially. That's that that is absolutely true. There is um, there is a good case to be made that there is not a 
society in the history of the world ever that has not experienced poverty. So there is always, um, there is always, I think, or historically, nobody has sorted the problem of poverty altogether. And the role of the non-government sector in things like delivering services and charity and um, people contact and all of those sorts of things some of them do an excellent job, so it's not that they're bad, but it is absolutely um, a shared responsibility to address poverty in Australia, as it is most social ills. Uh, however, it's there is a there is a very compelling case to be made that um, that public expenditure in the form of governments have a huge role to play in that. And I guess the obvious place to start would be New Start, because that is a completely pernicious, vicious uh, payment that does nothing to address poverty and, in fact, probably perpetuates some of its some of its worst effects. What What would be the solution to solving that problem with Newstart, in your opinion? Raise it immediately. It, yep. it, the rate The rate of it needs to be raised so there so it is something close to um, a an income support that people can live on. Because at the moment it's it's very very difficult to live on it, and and I think when you look at the calculations of the costs associated with being in the world, particularly being in a capital city, and the um, and the rates of new start allowance, it doesn't add up. It's it's a mathematical impossibility, and there's very 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 little disagreement about that. Actually, the only argument for not raising it is that it would be too appealing for people to have something that would stop them getting a job, which is a ridiculous argument and getting more ridiculous by the day. Makes sense, I think. I think there's a tension between the state having too much dependence from its subjects, if I can call them that, um, and then just being harsh and, you know, not helping at all. Um, either one of those things is a, is a bad situation to be in. You don't want over-dependence on the state because that breeds complacency and it doesn't um, create incentive for work and productivity. Um, but on the other end, you don't want to be so scathing and harsh that people are desperate and it's only at that point they actually get assistance. Um, I think of New Zealand citizens that live in Australia and how they have a uniquely difficult time um, as they pay taxes, don't get any benefits whatsoever, and it takes them a very long time to actually become Australian citizens, more than um, most people, actually. It's, it's quite a long time frame and the requirements are quite different. Um, so there's definitely issues there. In regard to um, a minimum wage, um, the, the arguments that I've heard and that I tend to agree with is when you get some you know, people coming in that aren't skilled they, or they're on the minimum wage, that then affects people that you know, are skilled or that were previously hired in positions um, and suddenly they have more skill um, and they're being pitted against people that don't have skills yet the you know the, those with the skills are going to ask for more money so in effect they become less desirable for employers because they're asking for a higher rate um, so yeah there's yeah it, it sounds like it's kind having a minimum wage but a that means a tax increase of some kind to accommodate it um, but b it does affect those who are you know working class, it, it means that there's less jobs to go around for them. Um, so those are, I guess, some of my concerns. I'm definitely no expert in the area. This may seem to be like a controversial question. However, can you be 
asset rich or financially rich but yet still be living in poverty? I would say yes to that. Um, obviously, my definition of poverty there would not include economic poverty um, if you are wealthy. Um, I would say that there can be a kind of poverty. It's poverty of the soul. It's a poverty of um, many different things. When, when all you do is pursue money, that in itself can deprive you and create a lack in your life. Um, you know, there are many people that you know, pursue their careers to the point where they have nothing else. And once the career ends or something happens, some life-altering um, situation occurs, they literally have nothing else um, in their life that they pursue. So I think there's two answers to your question. One is, um, can you be wealthy and look like you're poor? And the answer is yes. If you've got a clever accountant, you can look like you've got zero income and that's because you buried it all in trust funds. Um, so you could structure yourself like a corporation and, um, and seem to be without an income, but in fact, be doing pretty nicely. Thank you. Um, I think uh, what you might be talking about is the opposite situation where you have uh, what seems to be sufficient resources, but you, but in fact, you don't. Is that is that what you mean? Something more from the angle where you could be, say, financially wealthy, but uh, have mental health issues, could be living in rural communities where you don't have access to those kind of facilities or... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think it might be one of those situations where, where poverty is a less useful word than some others to describe the circumstance. But certainly um, when we think about situations of, for instance, family and domestic violence, um, right. where, where people might be living in a circumstance where their um, partner, their husband, earns uh, a very high income, the house that they live in is worth a lot of money, However, they live in a context of coercive control where they have very constrained choices, no access to money, no access to making their own decisions about budgeting or anything else. And so um, they are uh, pretty trapped often, actually, because yeah. they, they look on paper like they can afford um, choices, including choices to um, remove themselves from that situation, but in fact, they, they can't get access to those resources that are in theory there. So that's one instance where the, the situation you're in may be masking the true kind of circumstances of your financial and other well-being. There are also circumstances where, I mean, to give the example that you've cited, that people may have um, sufficient resources to buy or, you know, um, purchase the support that they need, but they're in a context where that support isn't available. So although they um, have the income, they don't have the well-being that's, um, that income can, in theory, um, allow them to have. As I said, I'm not sure. I mean, poverty has to do quite a lot of heavy lifting conceptually anyway. Yeah. So I think in those sort of circumstances, terms like well-being or health or mental health may be more useful but but yeah certainly um income is a great um inoculator against hardship as i was saying before but it but it no being by no means guarantees it and for our listeners can you recommend any resources that should they should read or look up if they want any information about poverty yeah absolutely so our um our website is a social policy research centre. As I said, if you Google it, you will find it. It's the first hit. Um, I'd also recommend the ACOS, which is the Australian Council of Social Service website, which has a great deal of resources and information, including the report on poverty in Australia. That's a partnership between 
UNSW and ACOS and has all kinds of facts and figures and infographics and summary bullet points as well as a lot of detail. And um, both our website and the ACOS website have links to a whole lot of other resources as well. So they're a good place to start. I guess what I would recommend is some of the organisations that I've mentioned that do the microfinancing. I'm, again, talking overseas, but then in Australia as well, the, there are similar organisations. Um, so I'm a big fan of Compassion Australia. Um, they focus on child sponsorship through local churches. It's a Christian organization. Um, World Vision, though, doesn't necessarily have the church focus. They both do microfinancing um, arrangements uh, that, that really do seem to break the cycle of economic poverty, but that then also leads to other kinds of poverty being broken as well. Um, Samaritan's Purse is another organization um, that does a very similar thing. They do really great work. And as someone who's personally invested into these um, organizations, you actually see firsthand the impact you're having on children. And, you know, you change a child, the child then gets, you know, educated, then the child is able to, you know, literally change the community. Um, so they take a very individual approach, but then, you know, they those things kind of, um, it's a much, it's a profound impact. It's not just one person that you're impacting. Um, and the Smith family do amazing work as well. I mean, I'm sure other people have other um you know, organizations they know of. But in terms of child sponsorship, that really does challenge um, not only the economic challenges, but the thought that someone believes in you and is thinking of you, that has such a profound impact um, and it really can um, change someone's life trajectory. Just before we wrap up this interview, could you tell the listeners about any new projects or books or anything you got coming out in the near future? At present, um, working on a mental health project with Pacific Islanders. Um, so we're in the thick of that. We're just about to finish. Um, so yeah, um, hopefully it'll, it'll be some impacting stuff. Uh, that's always a good question. Um, I, at the moment, everything is all about, um, the pandemic influenza, right? So I imagine that in eight months we'll be doing, um, we'll be doing research on the fallout from that. Um, at the moment, my research program is looking at some, at continuing to look at the work that I've done for quite a long time now on um, stigma and its effects. Um, I've got an interest in um, people who use drugs and other kinds of vulnerable groups. And I also do um, quite a lot of work around um, families and housing and um, and sort of negotiating the, the support systems that are in place compared to the support systems that people actually need so i hope to be doing continuing to work on that well thank you professor for your time we understand you're a busy person we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to us about poverty today well thank you good luck with thanks for letting me be part of this and um, it's been nice to consider poverty in a deeper way um and yeah hopefully people make the most of some of those organizations i recommended take care so what did we learn today i think i learned that alleviating poverty isn't as simple as throwing money at an organisational cause. I think as a nation, Australians aren't aware of the importance relationship building between non-government organisations or NGOs and the government can have on alleviating poverty. Clearly poverty has become politically weaponized, as depending on what the government is, the government can clearly have a preference on what NGOs they work with, and these relationships can be purely political as opposed to what NGOs can provide the best service or who has the largest reach within the community. This exercise can be used as a means of vote buying, as opposed to helping those out who desperately need it. I think that is one of the biggest tragedies within the context of Australian poverty. Is a global minimum wage or a global payment the answer to eliminating poverty? I'm not entirely sure on that one. 
But perhaps this might be another topic that needs further investigation in another episode of the Bullshit Blog. I also think phases like eliminating poverty is actually detrimental to alleviating poverty. Not only do terms like elimination promote a false sense of hope, as no society, government or political system in the history of the world has ever eliminated poverty. It promotes a false narrative that nobody's doing anything meaningful to help alleviate poverty. However, I guess having a concept to help alleviate poverty wouldn't sell as many tickets as a concept that eliminates poverty. Another question that arose in today's episode was that should the Australian government be less involved in alleviating poverty? One thing I did learn was these are incredibly difficult questions that not one person can answer. If the government were to leave alleviating poverty to the NGOs, do you open up the system to exploitation and leave the most vulnerable in our society in being less empowered and trash their safety net? These are all valid points that need a further exploration, however the main thing I learned Today is I don't think we will ever solve the poverty issue. Also, I think Australians stereotypically have become complacent. We know we won't solve poverty, therefore we are happy to ignore it for our own creature comforts. Well, until the next episode of the Bullshit Blog, where we will discuss education, whether or not it has become a vessel for indoctrination, be sure you join me, Adam Spins, on the same bullshit time and the same bullshit podcast to get your dose of critical thinking. Welcome to the Bullshit Blog. Your number one podcast for disseminating truth from bullshit. Covering public health, politics, the economy, the occult, spirituality, and everything in between. If you're fed up with the mainstream media, then keep listening. <laughs>